This program is made possible entirely by the support of listeners just like you. To find out all the ways to support the show, check out the support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Progressive Magazine, Counterspin, That's Bullshit with Sam Cedar, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. We've been talking about financial reform for months. Uh, we finally uh, have a final bill that is going to be presented to the House and the Senate. Everybody signed off on it. Uh, they uh, actually uh, all agreed to it at a little past 5 o'clock in the morning last night. So they've been working on it for, uh, feverishly for the last couple of days, and we have a deal. So now it's got some good sides and some bad sides. Uh, first, let me start with the bad sides. Here's how Dylan Radigan uh, summarizes it. Uh, he says, these are the things that are not fixed. The cops, regu- meaning the regulators and the rating agencies, working for the crooks. Uh, and that's because Al Franken's, got amendment, uh, Al Franken's amendment got removed, for example, so that the rating agencies still work for the banks, which doesn't make any sense. So that's among the problems. Uh, the banks are still too big to fail. I agree with him on that. Uh, if they, they didn't get chopped up, and if they fail now, we will still bail them out. Uh, Obama says, no, we won't. No, we won't. It's, I don't believe that for a second. Um, I'm going to get to the good news in a second. Uh, the banks are still gambling with our deposits uh, because the Lance-Lincoln Amendment largely failed. I will explain that in a second. Uh, banks allowed to do mark-to-market, which uh, Radigan calls mark-to-myth, uh, which is, I don't know if you know this, the banks are allowed to say, hey, you know what, this is what I think my assets are worth. Which is, of course, absurd. They used to be mark-to-market, which was, hey, tell us what the real value of those assets are based on what the market is for that particular asset. Now it's, you know, they just make it up. Okay, so it's absurd. They're all insolvent just based on that alone. Uh, so they still get to do that. And the banks are still getting trillions from the Fed, Fannie and Freddie, uh, which is true. They are. And Fannie and Freddie were not... Uh, uh, tackled in this bill, even though the Republicans wanted to. Uh, and they made some good points on Fannie and Freddie. Uh, they also wanted to distract a little bit uh, from the issue, but I probably would have accepted some of their points. And then uh, on the Fed, well, the Fed is still doing exactly what it was doing, uh, which is disastrous. They just recently printed a trillion dollars so they could buy the worst toxic assets in the world. That's also our money. So that's awesome. Um, so now, the good parts. All right, it's not all bad. You, okay, you do have uh, the Consumer Protection Agency. It's not exactly where it should be. It's not, uh, you know, in its original form, independent, strong, etc. Of course it got watered down, and now at the end there was an exemption for the auto dealers. But it exists, so we'll see how it, it works later. Uh, and then we had some late-minute uh, wins. We had uh, a couple of things that were inserted in the bill were taken out. So shareholder control is back in. So now the shareholders will have more say in how they pick their board and their executives, et cetera, which is great, which is great. And then uh, another late win was uh, the brokers still have a fiduciary duty to look out for the best interests of their clients. That was going to get removed so that your brokers wouldn't have your best interests in mind. Okay, so But that got put back in, so that's good news. And then uh, the, bank, the top banks, over $50 billion in assets, and the top hedge funds, over $10 billion in assets, have to pay for the bill, and that's cost $19 billion. They were you know, furious about that, but they did get stuck with that bill, which, of course, 
they have to regulate themselves so that the taxpayer don't, doesn't keep bailing them out. That makes a lot of sense that that's positive. Now, when you get to the two most critical issues, the Volcker Rule and the Blanche Lincoln Amendment, that's where the real heart of the matter is. Well, the Volcker Rule was you can't uh, do proprietary tra trading, meaning make money for yourself and not for your clients, because the po point of the bank is to facilitate trades for people, and that's how they make money off of that, which is good. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, unfortunately, they've been taking some of that money, including depositor money, and gambling with it for themselves. And initially, uh, Obama wanted to stop that. The final conclusion was, we got about, and this is really rough, but about 60% of what we wanted there. The intricate rules on that are very complicated. But the bottom line is, as an example of J.P. Morgan Chase, they're still going to be able to do 40% of what they were doing before in terms of proprietary trading. So they think that cuts in their profits a little bit, but they still have significant loopholes, and they still uh, can do trading with a certain percentage of their funds. Right? So, 60-40? Eh, okay. Uh, I'm, we're still in the ball game. There's still some good stuff in here. Some, obviously, some things were massively... Uh, unaddressed, but as I wrote last night, I think, and I've been talking about on the show, the most important thing is the Lincoln Amendment. Because uh, if, if it swings one way, then I'll say, okay, good enough, half a loaf, let's take it and run. Okay. If it swings the other way, and it turns out it's, it's, they actually gutted it and took it out, well then, this is not enough, and then we, I'm afraid we'll collapse again. Right. So what happened with the Lincoln Amendment? Of course, it wasn't black and white. They weren't unsavvy enough to say, okay, we're going to take it out completely and throw it in the garbage can. Uh, at the same time, well, they weren't going to keep it as it was. It was pretty strong. In fact, just yesterday I was telling you, I'm surprised it's still in there, and it's still strong, and we got about a day left. I'm like, could it happen? I had a little bit of hope. So, uh, how did the final compromise turn out? Well, I'm going to characterize it for you about, we got a third of what we wanted. <laughs> Okay, so it's not, you know, it's not, oh, no, it's BS, and they, you know, it was meant to actually completely kill the whole thing, and they're not going to do any of that. No, no, no. They do. There's significant chunks of derivatives trading that they will have to separate out into a different subsidiary, okay? But, here comes the two huge buts. The part of the derivatives trading that is the most lucrative, uh, interest rates, foreign exchanges, etc., they can still do, they can still do with uh, depositors' money, backed up by depositors' money, and backed up by taxpayer money. So they get to keep the largest chunk by far. And now if you thought that butt was bad, where'd you get the second one? And if they think it mitigates their risk, they can still do other derivatives trade. <laughs> As I tell you, I think I'm being really kind by saying we got a third of what we wanted, right? Because that is a loophole so gigantic that it almost pretty much swallows up the whole rule, right? Because it's, oh, well, of course, no, 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 I'm not trying to make an extra buck out of this. I'm just trying to mitigate my bank's risk. Of course, that's why I did the derivative trading. That's what they said in the first place. So it's not like anything changed on that. So, but some got removed in, will have to get removed into a subsidiary. So now that you've seen the good and the bad, what's the final result? Probably not good enough. You know, am I confident that these will limit the risks that they take with our money? Or if that they fail, that we actually won't go to back them up. We'll just say, oh, okay, those guys lost the money. And, but luckily, we walled it off enough so it doesn't affect the rest of the economy, and it doesn't affect our money, it doesn't affect our pensions, it doesn't affect our deposits. Did that job get done? Yeah, i got to say no, it didn't get done. 
And so, of course, Obama will tell you, this is historic, mission accomplished. No, 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 it's done. It's the biggest uh, financial reform since the Great Depression uh, reforms, and everything's going to be okay from now on. Uh, problem contained. And I think that is uh, largely false. I, I think that is largely untrue. There's a story in the paper this week about a world-class asshole. His name was Dan Duncan, the 74th richest man in the world, a Houston oil man. See, everything is about oil and how evil it is. And this guy loved being near nature's most beautiful creatures and blowing holes in them. He was he he loved killing rare big game. He killed lions, leopards, elephants, buffalo, rhinoceros, polar bears. At Christmas, he'd blow the holy hell out of a partridge in a pear tree. He was just a great guy. But it has a happy ending. He had a brain hemorrhage in March. And uh, thanks to the Bush tax cuts, no estate taxes were paid. This is the 74th most wealthy man in the world, $9 billion, and his kids get all of it. Now, this is a, a loophole just for this year, right? But the estate tax comes back next year when it will apply to all of 5,500 people. Um, it seems like we have to tax something. <laughs> Why not tax rich, dead people? <laughs> <laughs> of all the things you could tax, they don't have any need for the money on account of that whole being dead thing. <laughs> You've, I, I know you... You know where I'm coming out. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah. but Go ahead. You, you were in the Senate when this passed. Yeah. And I remember at the time, everybody saying, oh, well, there could be this year, and that dead people, I'm sorry, not dead people should plan, living people should plan to die. Uh, then. It was right. part of your estate plan. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> he did. <laughs> and that gets into other issues that you dealt with in the Senate. But the central thing seems to be that you knew this was going to happen, mm -hmm. and you just said you can do anything in the Senate. Why didn't you do something about yeah, that? Yeah, first, first of all, it's not like, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> we did, and that's what we did. And the New York Times article which wrote about it really left out the fact that in 2001, 2003, we, meaning the legislative branch, the president of the time, and the American people, passed legislation that said over a 10-year period, estate taxes, death taxes, would go down lower and lower and lower until 2010, they would disappear. So it's not like that's all of a sudden 2010, they're not there, that it would actually come down. Now, unless that's renewed, it will jump back up. So the American people had legislation which but, said that, and I think that's a good thing. And, and just, this, let me go ahead and finish, because this is kind of the setup for it. But I think we should repeal death taxes. I think the slope coming down is exactly what we should do, because if you're a family, you're working hard, you come to America, you earn money, you save, you invest, you pay taxes along of it, you have that money, why shouldn't you be able to pass but it on to your children? we're only talking about the richest of the rich. We're not talking about most people. And just to, just to show this is not just Republicans. Wait a second. This is not just Republicans. 
in, a, in a Obama's budget in, last April, it protected 99.8% of the people from 99.8. If I had a pie chart that showed just that 1.2 sliver, you, you need a jeweler's eye to see it. And yet, Republicans, all of them, and 10 Democrats voted to protect that 0.2%. I say some stupid shit, don't mean a word of it You know I got a lot of love inside me This world's an ugly place for such a pretty face They're coming at you from all sides But they gotta get through me I wanna protect you I love Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist Senator from Vermont. He's been all over the Wall Street scandal, and he's absolutely right when he links it to the BP disaster. Both are the result of untrammeled corporate power. And he's right about one other thing, the need to reestablish the estate tax this calendar year. Right now, in 2010, if Bill Gates or Warren Buffett died, their estates wouldn't have to pay a single penny in taxes. Their offspring would get every single dime of those billions, and our government, which is starving for cash, wouldn't get a thing. That's not how it should be. It's not right that those of us who work nine to five have to pay taxes on whatever we earn while the heirs get their money tax-free by doing nothing. And taxing huge estates is the least painless way to fund the government projects that are so necessary today. This year is the first year since 1916 that huge estates haven't been taxed. So this week, Bernie Sanders introduced a bill to rectify that and to add a surtax on billionaires. I'm all for it. Let's stop pretending we have a classless society here and let's start making the super rich pay a little more. They won't feel it. Desert wind and a perverse desire to win History buried in shame Are the beating drum Celebration guns The thunder and the laughter Last thing they remember Are the beating drums Celebration guns The Washington Post went after Social Security again on June 9th. This isn't surprising, but this time the paper focused on Social Security advocates who questioned the existence of a crisis in the program, which is a view rarely heard in the media discussion. The Post said these activists are focusing on the White House's Deficit Reduction Commission, giving the commission's work a sinister cast, according to the paper, which informs us that these Social Security supporters believe the commission has a secret plan to cut Social Security and are using heated rhetoric to make their point. Well, that sounds conspiratorial, but the plan's not at all secret. As the Post eventually acknowledged, the Commission's members are in agreement on, quote, adjusting Social Security benefits, close quote. Adjustment here means cuts. Like many other news accounts, the Post portrayed this issue as simple mathematics. Quote, budget experts say it would be difficult to significantly reduce future deficits without addressing the rising cost of Social Security, close quote. So we 
we have social security advocates or defenders on one side and budget experts on the other. As if to reinforce this point, the Post quoted an analyst from the Conservative Heritage Foundation about the intellectual consensus that supports his argument. As economist Dean Baker noted at his Beat the Press blog, the upshot here is that the quote-unquote experts believe the government should default on the portion of its debt held by the Social Security Trust Fund. Well, that's a radical idea, misappropriating trillions of dollars collected from working people to support the retired elderly and instead using that money to keep down tax rates for the wealthy. One can count on outlets like the Washington Post to portray this as a necessary solution offered up by experts. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Now, they're going to do a, a G20 summit in Canada, and uh, Canada is now the envy of uh, all the European and obviously the American uh, countries that are in G20, right, because Canada's uh, financial system did not implode. So uh, why did it not implode? Did they have a subprime meltdown? Nope. Did they have problems with their mortgages? Nope. And in fact, because of course of a worldwide recession, and obviously they're an enormous trading partner of America, they also had a recession. But they've already recovered. Their annual rate of growth in this year, uh, in the first three months, was 6.1%. That's fantastic. They've already recovered three quarters of the jobs that were lost in the recession. As opposed to us, we've hardly recovered any jobs we lost in the recession. Okay? They've recovered three quarters. And their banking system is perfectly healthy. Why? This is very important. One, it's tightly regulated. Even though they actually have very large banks. You know, we're worried about large banks here, but I've often said the size isn't necessarily the problem. Yes, it could definitely be a contributing factor, but the real problem is leverage. And point number two in Canada, they do not allow leverage like we do. Okay? So, I mean, some banks were just on the books, let alone off the books, were leveraged 30 to 40 to 1. So they're making $40 worth of bets on only $1 that they kind of have in the bank. Well, that's any gambler knows that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what happened to Lehman Brothers, and that's what happened to all the banks here. Well, Canada doesn't allow that. They say if you have a dollar, you can only bet so much. And it ain't 40, it ain't 30, it ain't necessarily 10. Okay? It's a smarter and safer system. Here's another thing they don't allow. They don't allow you to take mortgages package them up and sell them to someone else. Because if you do that, you give incentive to the people giving the mortgages to make crap mortgages. Oh, yeah, who cares? You don't have income. You can't really pay. it. It's overpriced. I don't care. Just sign the damn thing. I'm going to package it together and sell it to this guy. Right? That's what we did here in the U.S. Another recipe for disaster. Canada doesn't allow it. If you make the mortgage, you keep the mortgage. All of a sudden, if it's your ass on the line, you're like, uh, let me check your papers again. 
you're a lot more careful about how, what kind of mortgages you give out. So now, and it in every way, Canada's system is more regulation because regulation is needed, as we saw here, and does not encourage more risk. It encourages less risk. So the reason I emphasize this so much is because there is a right way to do this. People always talk about, oh, well, you know, if we just uh, knew what to do, but we don't, nobody could have seen this coming, etc. No, 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 the Canadians saw it coming. They have the right system. Now, is there anything stopping us from doing the same exact things Canada does with their banking system? The answer is yes or no. No, logically, there's nothing stopping us. Yes, in reality, what's stopping us is the power of our big banks. Hey, so think about that, man. Think about what that says about our system. Everyone in the world agrees the Canadian system is better, and we know exactly why it's better. And it's not like we didn't know that before. It's not like Bush's administration didn't know that. Obama administration didn't know that. They know it. They all know it. It's not like, whoa, really? Canada's doing that? I didn't know that. They know it. So why don't they do what they know works? It's because, as Dick Durbin, the number two man for the Democrats in the Senate, said, the banks run this place. They take money and they contribute it to all those committees in the House and all those committees in the Senate. They buy all the politicians. They buy the staffers. And ultimately, they buy the executive branch as well. So that when we go to do what is logical, what we know works, and Canada is not Botswana, the Canada is not the Philippines, it's right next door. If it can work for them, obviously it could work for us. And we don't do it because our system is deeply corrupt. It's bought by the people who are profiting from that. And lo and behold, who got the record amount of bailouts? The bankers did. Who are still taking record amount of risk? The bankers are. Who are making, who's making record bonuses off those risks as we speak, even though they crashed the entire economy? The bankers are. And how do they do that? They bought our politicians. There is a right way. We know what the answer is. We're just not doing it. So we've got to put pressure on this system to change so that we, ha we do things the right way, not the wrong way.
And back in 2005, Americans successfully forced the representatives to stop Bush and the Republicans from cutting and destroying our Social Security retirement insurance. But today, under the Democratic administration, we're facing the same old lies and scare tactics. This time, we got a supposedly bipartisan commission to examine the federal deficit. It's packed with Republicans and corporate-backed Democrats who want to kill Social Security. And that's just bullshit. Now, spanning the globe, from Sunday talk shows to his Twitter feed, from across the fruited plains to Mars, bitches, it's That's Bullshit with Sam Cedar and Bullshit. And now, Sam Cedar. Social Security is the most successful and popular government program this country has ever created. It provides insurance for kids if they're ever orphaned, income for Americans who can't work because they become disabled, and it keeps tens of millions of our elderly out of poverty in their retirement. In short, it works exactly how it was designed to work. But opponents of Social Security claim the program is in crisis. Here's the reality. Based on the most conservative estimates, if we do absolutely nothing at all to fix this crisis, Social Security will pay out full benefits through the year 2037. After that, Retirees will still receive 75% of their promised benefits until the end of the century. Here's a news flash. That's not a question. Is there anything you can point to besides Social Security that's guaranteed to deliver for the next 30 years? We should be so lucky to have more crisis on like Social Security. Are you still pretending we've got a crisis? Okay. Simply raise the cap on the amount of wages Social Security taxes from a worker's first $100,000 to a worker's first $500,000. Do that and Social Security will pay full benefits until every person watching this video and their grandkids are dead. A creepy way of putting it? Yes. A crisis? No. Which brings us to President Obama's supposed bipartisan federal deficit commission, otherwise known as the Makeup Bill Currency Catholic Commission. It's packed with opponents of Social Security who want to use the BS idea that our deficit is turning us into Greece as an excuse to cut our Social Security benefits. All this despite the fact that Social Security funds itself, still runs a surplus, and adds nothing to the federal deficit. Still, they think they can just take our retirement insurance benefits to pay off the cost of tax cuts to millionaires. Having to point out that there's no real crisis to stop George Bush and a Republican Congress from destroying Social Security is one thing. But having to point it out to a Democratic president looking to curry favor with the elite establishment and to build his bipartisan Republicans always make the claim, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, trickle-down economics. Don't worry, it appears that we're giving gigantic tax cuts to the rich, but they'll eventually get to your ass. Don't worry, don't worry. 
Uh, all right, so that's that's what you say. Uh, well, we we have numbers, so let's see if those numbers bear that out and see how we've been doing. Well, let's go to the Institute for Policy Studies graph on the distribution of U.S. wealth in 2007. This is the latest figures we have. Well, it appears that the bottom 50% didn't get trickled on very much. Uh, they have only 2.5% of the entire wealth of the U.S. That's half the country only has 2.5%. Uh, the 50th to 90th percentile only has 26%. 90th to 99th percentile has 37.7%, and just the top 1% has 33.8%. So you get that? The top 1% of the country has more of our wealth than the bottom 90%. Okay, 90% of all of us combined does not equal the top 1% as far as wealth is concerned. Does it look like it trickled down to you? Well, if you're not sure how these numbers are relative to other years, that's a great question. You should be. Say, hey, maybe it's always been that way, right? No, this is the worst percentage for the middle class and the poor since the uh, 1920s, the biggest disparity in income. So you remember what happened in the late 1920s? Oh, right, a stock market crash. Funny how that happens. This doesn't help anybody, and ultimately it doesn't even help the rich, because you create such an imbalance that the system crashes, and then you, the tide does not rise, it goes down. We didn't do this for the 50 years that America was great. And, you know, it, we went and we had very high marginal tax rates. I'm not sure they should even be that high. But, and we had very high estate tax rates. But the idea was take that money and provide an opportunity for the middle class and grow the infrastructure. We don't do that anymore. So now another graph. This is the share of capital income earned by the top 1% versus the bottom 80%. See the top 1% at the top, and that is going right on up. And you know, during the Bush years, that top one percent loved what was happening. They still love what's happening in the Obama years. Okay, based on other numbers that we've seen. Now these are for the Bush years. Okay, and and earlier. Right. Now, how are we doing with the bottom eighty percent? Well, their share is going down, and that gap grows and grows and grows. And that's why part of the reason why we have the collapses that we do. We had one in '08, and my guess is if this keeps going, we're going to have another one fairly soon. Finally, uh, let's go to the third graph. Uh, the past two, dec uh, two decades, how did everyone do? Again, did we have the rising tide? Well, as you see there, uh, the top 1% of earners, again, doing very well. CEO doing well. S&P 500 doing really well. Um, all these uh, things are going great. Oh, wait, except for that last one there, the federal minimum wage is at a negative. That's fascinating. And uh, as your production goes up, your pr productivity and what you produce is going up, well, your wages are going down. So, does it look like all of our boats got lifted? Does it look like it trickled down to us? No. Graph after graph shows you that the disparity has grown and grown and grown, and the rich have gotten richer, and the middle class uh, is just barely struggling uh, to remain as middle class rather than the poor, let alone what's happening to the poor. And now in the midst of all this, what do we have? We have Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner today arguing, as he does almost every day, no, 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 don't regulate the banks, don't regulate their derivatives trading, let them get richer and richer. Goldman Sachs recorded, and most, a lot of the major banks recorded record profits last year as our economy was crashing. Our unemployment rate is up to 10%. We've lost 8 million jobs. We're getting crushed. 
But our Treasury Secretary and our President assures us, hey, no, 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 don't worry, those banks will eventually take care of you. No, the numbers, the facts, those graphs show you they don't take care of you, they take care of themselves. It's time that we demanded a hell of a lot better from our government. We've lost track of what's built this country, and that's the middle class, not the bankers. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The most natural thing, but nothing we'd expect. All these buildings and mountains. By the way, last week on July 4th, you know what that means. The new unemployment numbers are here. The new unemployment numbers are here. The government said the unemployment rate dropped to 9.5%, but the economy still losing jobs. 125,000 in June. Allison Kosick at the New York Stock Exchange. We find that the job losses last month were due to the expected end of the line for temporary census workers. But private sector hiring was a bit weaker than expected. So I didn't quite catch the dire economic news over your indoor fireworks celebration. <laughs> the economy is collapsing. <laughs> of course, Wall Street wasn't the only ones trying to get America to look on the bright side. Imagine if we hadn't had the stimulus. It's hard to argue sometimes things would have been a lot worse. Right? It, it, you know, so people kind of say, yeah, but unemployment's still at 9.6. Yes, but it's not 12 or 13. Or 15. <laughs> yes. Yes, I believe we can all agree as Americans, there are many numbers bigger than nine. I think, I think we can thank our lucky stars it's not 35 or, I don't know, a thousand percent. I think we should remain thankful it's not a million percent unemployment. Of course, things could also be better, like if everything had gone according to the administration's own projections from early 2009 which said that the stimulus would cap unemployment at 8%. With the 9-plus percent jobless rate we have now, the doomsday scenario if Congress didn't pass the plan. Of course, not everyone in America has lost their job. For example, Christina Romer, the White House economist who made that chart. <laughs> she apparently still working. Although, wait until everyone reads her revealingly scathing review about the administration in this week's Rolling Stone. <laughs> Can't, can't believe they went with that same cover two issues in a row. That's very strange. Well, at least the unemployed still have their benefits, which will help them keep their heads barely above water. The House passed a bill to extend unemployment benefits, but the Senate, believe it or not, believe it or not failed by a single vote, then went home for a long Fourth of July recess. Come on! How do you let that happen? What did the Republicans do this time? Obstruct. One Democrat, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, uh, voted friend, no. Uh, if he had voted with his party, the bill uh, would have this. passed. Ah. 
<laughs> so that's what the Republicans did. They sat back and let a Democrat <laughs> things up himself. <laughs> Out of the Republican playbook, they decided to go with number one. <laughs> the thing is, extending benefits to jobless people seems like such a no-brainer. What possible argument could you make against it? You're taking money from productive people and giving it to unproductive people. Never mind. Many believe that 99 weeks of unemployment just makes it less likely folks out of work will even look for work. This isn't creating jobs. It's creating inertia. It's creating apathy. Continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. You hear that? People who have lost their jobs and are skating by on your $1,200 a month? The gravy train is over! Well... Not so much gravy as uh, the ketchup packet soup train is over. <laughs> I'm looking at you, nearly a million people who no longer count in the unemployment statistics because you stopped filing or looking for a job due to despair and or lack of shoes slash no electricity. <laughs> now there are arguments for why unemployment benefits actually help the economy. Now let me say about unemployment insurance, we talk about it as a safety net and the rest. This is one of the biggest sti uh, stimuluses to our economy. Economists will tell you it uh, injects demand into the economy and is job creating. To be fair, of course, that's coming from a woman who will most likely be unemployed very soon. But it's a straightforward point. Unless. What did they say now? Nancy Pelosi came out and said something very curious that it's sort of hard to parse the logic. <laughs> yeah. Economists will tell you it uh, injects demand into the economy and is job creating. I would love to know what economists say that. What economists say that? You know what, I could just ask mine. He's always here. Renowned economist Noriel Rubini, do you agree that paying unemployment benefits can stimulate the economy and create jobs? Yeah, absolutely, I agree with her. Unemployment benefits are the only source of income for all these millions of unemployed workers. They consume it all, that increases demand, consumption, okay. jobs, the economy. Thanks. We're gonna not extend them. I'm thirsty. Water, please, water. President Obama is changing budget directors, but what he needs to do is change his budget dialogue. Peter Orzog stepping down as OMB director, and Obama's nominating Jacob Liu, who held the post at the end of the Clinton era. So here's another Clinton retread in the Obama administration at a time when we desperately need new thinking and new framing on the budget. The Clintonites balanced the budget at a time when the economy was booming. Now many of them, like Rahm Emanuel, have insisted on trying to balance the budget while the economy's sputtering. And Peter Orzog's successor is likely to advocate more of the same, but that's exactly the wrong medicine 
for the patient right now. We need more stimulus for the economy. We need a public sector jobs program in the Gulf, and we need one nationwide to install solar panels on every single government building and put up windmills on our public lands. But we don't hear anything like that coming out of Obama's mouth because he's allowed himself to buy into the notion that the budget deficit is too large right now and that the debt is a huge problem. Neither is true. The deficit should actually be bigger right now to jumpstart the economy, and there's no sign whatsoever that we're unable to finance our debt. Obama needs to take hold of this budget issue himself and not leave it to the new OMB director or the Clintonites. And he needs to explain to the American people why a budget deficit is a blessing, not a sin right now. I welcome the sun, the clouds and rain, the wind that sweeps the sky clean and lets the sun shine again. This is the most magnificent life has ever been. Heaven and earth and the brilliant sky in between Blessed is this life And I'm gonna celebrate being alive I really do not feel well, folks And I am not the only one who is not feeling well Last week, evidently, the Labor Department reported that we lost another 125,000 jobs And I'm pretty sure the guy who created that report was then fired well, here, here's what happened next, okay? The, the Republicans filibustered extending unemployment benefits, which I think takes some giant legislative balls. Good for you, fellas. <laughs> and of course, the Democrats got up in arms because this November, a lot of them are gonna need unemployment benefits. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. Someone else talk for a while. Mr. Speaker. It is a shame and a disgrace that we did not extend unemployment insurance. Every single member who voted no yesterday should be ashamed of themselves. People are suffering. I ask my Republican colleagues, can't you hear? Can't you feel? Can't you see? Where is your heart? I think the Wizard of Oz has it. <laughs> it's right next to Michael Steele's brain. Folks, it sucks, it sucks, but we cannot extend benefits. It'll add like a quarter of 1% to the national debt. Someone agree with me, please. If we don't keep our own fiscal house in order, uh, we could look like Greece sooner, uh, sooner than you think. America really has a choice between becoming Greece or New Jersey. That's right, I know. We can become Greece or greasier. Look, no politician likes being seen screwing the unemployed, but there are decisions to be made. No one's disputing the value of these very important uh, programs. But we also have to have tough choices, and we also need to leave, live within our means. Thank you, Scott Brown. When you are starving, that is the best time to go on a diet. <laughs> you are already used to no food. And Nobel Prize winner Paul Krugman agrees. He said this last week. 
We are now speeding down the road of wasteful spending and debt, and unless we can escape, we'll be smashed in inflation. I'm sorry, that's not Krugman last week. That's Herbert Hoover during the Depression. <laughs> well, what did Krugman say? Do we? F it, I'll just ask him. Please welcome Paul Krugman. <laughs> Paul, I shake your hand. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I don't oh, know. Hey, I'm sick too. All right. Paul, thanks so much for coming back on. Well, hi there. Okay, now listen. Um, I want to apologize right off the top for not being as angry at you as I would like to, but I just don't have the strength. It's, it's all right. Okay. So, what did you what did you say about unemployment benefits? What do why do we need them? Isn't uh, it going to kill us? The debt's going to kill us. Uh, no, the debt's not. I mean, uh. Gosh, this guy just a minute ago made a pretty good argument. Actually, it, it, it won't add you know, nearly a quarter of a percent to our debt. It's a tiny amount of money, uh, which is desperately needed. I mean, first of all, these people are hurting. But how, but how does it, but how does it, I know, I, I know it's hurting, but try to make your argument without appealing to our humanity. Uh, all right, yeah, I can do that. I'm an economist. Okay. Um, the, the other thing is, what's the problem with our economy right now? We, we, we're, no in the, we're in the toilet. Obama right, killed there, it. There's not enough. <laughs> there, the stimulus killed it. There's not enough demand. The people are not spending enough. Businesses aren't spending enough. Right, right, right. now, the only party that's really in a position to sustain suspending, to keep, uh, to keep some demand up there so that jobs are available, is the federal government. One of the most effective ways the federal, federal government... The federal government can't create one job. Oh, they cannot create one job. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Other than Ronald <laughs> that, that, Reagan's right, right, job. Right, right. Uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Great Depression was ended by a large public works program. Uh, World War II. Known as World War II. Oh, exactly. That created a whole lot of jobs. Are you suggesting World War III? No, is I'm Paul not. Krugman uh, Although I would, I would like III? to be able to use that Hitler video if I could. But the, um, uh, no, but the, the, uh, the federal government can do a lot. Federal government, and in particular what the federal government could do right now, one of the most effective ways of getting spending power out there into the economy during this distressed time is to put money in the hands of people who desperately need the money and are going to spend it. Well, why not, so but, but why not, why not tax cuts, though? If you want to put money back in people's hands, go to tax cuts. That's trickle down. The problem Ta with tax you, cuts... You want to trickle up. The problem and I'm with here tax to tell cuts, you, as a sick person, nothing yeah. trickles up. Problem with... <laughs> okay. I got my own version there. That's okay. Do you? I'm sorry. Do you want some Gatorade, Paul Krugman? Uh, no, I've, I've had that. And I, I, okay. I've had enough in my lifetime. Okay. Um, so no, how does it help to get money to these poor people? Right now, all right. I'm going to actually be wonkish and economicy type okay, here. Okay. Hold on. Right? Hold on. Go so ahead. if you if you give money to someone who's well off, give money to me. I mean, I'm probably going to owe you. We're yeah. probably going to save a lot of it because we're not living hand to mouth. So that's not going to help the economy. If you give money to somebody who's on the edge, who's been unemployed for 30 weeks and is really desperate, that person is going to spend it. So actually, this is a way of putting money. The government actually doesn't have to spend it. The government just has to provide it to people. And it's a, it's a very fast, very effective way of creating jobs when you're in this kind of crisis. But, but so you're not worried about the debt at all? Oh, I mean, I, we're in deep financial problem. Like somebody, we, we have no money, we're way in debt, and you want to just blow $34 billion. Where are we right. supposed to get that money? We can get that money by, at the moment, by borrowing it. Uh, look, from the Chinese, people, you want us all to work for the Chinese. People who have... As opposed to... 
The U.S. government is able to borrow money long-term at less than 3% interest. Aside from the fact that that means that this is not a big problem to borrow right now, it's also saying that the financial markets, people with actual money on the line, are giving a vote of confidence. They believe that the federal government can spend money what deficits now. What about the Europeans? They don't have a vote of confidence in your ideas because Obama went up to the G20 and he got, you know, he got faced by the yeah, Europeans who said, they said, we are not, we're, they're, they're, the, they're the spenders, they're the socialist yeah. people, and they're the ones who gave you your Nobel Prize. Haven't they? <laughs> Shouldn't you have to return your Nobel Prize now for having, Swedes, going against the Europeans? The Swedes are happy. I was in Germany uh, last month, and I, I felt I was a little bit lucky to get out without being arrested by the austerity police. But the, uh, uh, <laughs> is, is that part of the Hitler meme? Yeah, um, yeah there we go. <laughs> but the European, look, the, the Europeans are, this is European politicians. European, you know, European investors are perfectly happy. So this is, a, this is a political thing. There's nothing forcing the U.S. government to penny pinch the way that the Republicans want it to. So we can just keep spending. As a wise man said just a few minutes ago, but going on a diet when you're starving is not a very good idea. It makes it easier to tighten your belt. This is true. Paul Krugman, thank you so much for coming by. Would you like a lozenge before you go? Uh -huh, thanks. I'm, I'm well equipped. Tom Corbett is the Republican candidate for governor in the great state of Pennsylvania. He's just gone public with his position on jobs, and his position is that unemployed people are unemployed because they want to be unemployed. Mr. Corbett explaining at a campaign stop in Elizabethtown, quote, the jobs are there, but if we keep extending unemployment, people are just going to sit there. The jobs are there. You hear that, Pennsylvania? Never mind what you hear about five applicants for every job there is in the country. Tom Corbett, Republican nominee for governor of Pennsylvania, says the jobs are there, and you're just too lazy to take those jobs. It should be noted that that message that unemployed people are just lazy is not a Tom Corbett original. That message keeps turning up among Republican candidates this year. We have put in so much entitlement into our government that we really have spoiled our citizenry and said, you don't want the jobs that are available. That, of course, is Sharon Angle, Republican candidate for Senate in Nevada, saying that unemployed people are spoiled. Her fellow Nevada Republican, Congressman Dean Heller, recently warned that unemployment benefits may be creating a nation of hobos. He actually used the word hobos. Uh, and it's not just Republican candidates or Republican congressmen up for re-election. This attacking the unemployed thing is also being pushed by Republican leaders in Congress. You know, we should not be giving cash to people who, who basically are just going to go blow it on drugs. That doesn't create new jobs. In fact, if anything, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. The Republican Party appears poised to contest the elections this year on the basis of, hey, unemployed guy, we hate you. When they're not objecting to unemployment benefits on the basis that unemployed people are lazy and don't deserve them, the Republicans have another line of attack. They say if we are going to play un pay unemployment benefits to those lazy people, it can't be added to the deficit. Those benefits must be paid for. 
This week, the Senate is back in session, and once again, Republicans are blocking the extension of unemployment benefits on the grounds that the deficit is just too big right now. We can't add those unemployment benefits for lazy people to the deficit. A few months ago, Republican Senator Jim Bunning started Republican objections to unemployment benefits when he stood alone in the Senate against them. Even though he objected alone back then, you saw the seeds of what's happening now among Republicans, when some Republicans at the time said they had Jim Bunning's back. This is a temporary extension. It's over $10 billion. And all Senator Bunning was saying, quite correctly, is it ought to be paid for. Republican Senator John Kyle of Arizona adding to his argument that unemployed people just don't want to get jobs. His conviction that any benefits for unemployed people can't be added to the deficit. They must, as he said, be paid for. Sorry, unemployed lazy people. Your benefits add to the deficit, so we can't help you. If there's one thing Republicans want voters to count on them for right now, it's to prioritize the deficit over all things. They really want to reduce that deficit. It's their main focus. Anything that's not paid for, sorry, we can't afford it. It's the deficit. No exceptions. No exceptions. Except one really, really expensive exception. How are you going to pay the $678 billion just on the tax cuts for people over making Chris. more than $200,000 a year? You should never raise taxes in order to cut taxes. Surely, Congress has the authority, and it would be right to, if we decide we want to cut taxes to spur the economy, not to have to raise taxes in order to offset those costs. You do need to offset the cost of increased spending, and that's what Republicans object to, but you should never have to offset the cost of a deliberate decision to reduce tax rates on Americans. Ta-da! Remember, John Kyle is one of the Republicans blocking unemployment benefits for people who've lost their jobs because that can't be added to the deficit. But nearly $700 billion of tax cuts that benefit people who make more than $200,000 a year? Tax cuts for rich people? Those? Go ahead and add them to the deficit. Just to be clear, a deficit is money into the government, like taxes, minus the money out of the government, like spending. That's it. Those are the only two ingredients, money in and money out. If you're saying you don't care about one of those things, if you're saying taking in less taxes isn't a big deal to you, then the deficit isn't really a big deal to you. Those two things are equally important, the taxes coming in and the money going out. Disregarding one of them would be like saying, hey, let me make you a gin and tonic. Right? Uh, here's a glass with some ice in it. Right? I'm making you a gin and tonic. This is gin and tonic. <clears throat> Here's your go. Here's your gin and tonic. You ready? There's your delicious gin and tonic. That's it. Taxes and spending are the two ingredients that combine to make the deficit, and you're just not going to count the taxes part of it? That's like saying, this is your gin and tonic. Sorry, we don't have any gin. Enjoy. If you say tax cuts don't need to be paid for, then you're faking it when you say you care about the deficit. You are faking it. You are lying. You are being stupefyingly ignorant. Take your pick. But if Democrats let them get away with this, let them get away with this argument against spending and for deficit-bulging tax cuts, if they let that argument win the day, Democrats are not just aiding and abetting stupefying ignorance and bad drinks. They're also digging their own political graves here. You win elections by improving the economy. And what the economy needs right now is stimulus. And no matter how much Republicans want to crow about tax cuts and how tax cuts are so important, they don't even need to be paid for. Just lard them onto the deficit. Tax cuts don't really stimulate the economy that well. 
What does is the unemployment benefits that Republicans are blocking. According to even the conservative economist Mark Zandi, here's how it works. Every buck that the government spends on an across-the-board tax cut creates a dollar and two cents in economic activity. Not very much bang for that buck. Every dollar the government spends on unemployment benefits, on the other hand, creates a dollar sixty-three in economic activity. That money is spent. It goes right back into the economy. It makes sense. You're giving money to people who are broke and don't have jobs and desperately need money. They need to be able to spend that money. It goes into the economy, it drives demand, it helps the whole country's economy. Tax cuts help a tiny little bit, but nowhere near as much. This is one of those easy cases where the right politics and the right policy and the tasty drink line up together for Democrats. Republicans complaining about the deficit is hereby negated forever, as long as they're still pushing for tax cuts for rich people to be added to that deficit. <laughs> Democrats can do well politically in this case, by going for policies that are actually right for the economy, not policies that are only right for people who don't believe in math or in gin. So George Will, you know, the guy that got caught lying about global warming and also made up the stat that windmills kill more birds every year than the golf oil spill. Well, guess what? He's still allowed on television. Not only that, but when he comes on TV, he is asked to give his opinion on things. Because I guess they couldn't find a less reliable, out-of-touch douchebag to come be an ass on Sunday TV since Liz Cheney was already booked on Fox. Here's our man George responding to a question about why they can't pass an unemployment extension. Well, partly because they believe that when you subsidize something, you get more of it, and we're subsidizing unemployment. That is, the, the long-term unemployment, those unemployed more than six months, is at an all-time high. And they, want, they do not think it's stimulative, because what stimulates is, is the consumer and the saver's sense of permanent income. And everyone knows that unemployment benefits are not permanent income. So there's George Will, like clockwork, makes the stupid statement that the best way to get people back to work in the middle of a depression is to take away their unemployment benefits. Yeah, you know, because the newly unemployed are just lazy no-goods who need some tough love. And then they will stop being such slackers and get back to work. No, don't fix the broken system that created the worst economy since the Great Depression. No, no, keep throwing trillions of dollars at Wall Street. You know, a policy that ensures that the useful investment capital is kept out of the real economy and keeping our job growth stagnant. Let's just say this. George Will's idea can be summed up like this. we got to beat this rising unemployment. So I say, let's take away the unemployed's unemployment insurance so then they will go back to work and stop getting laid off from their jobs on purpose. See, it makes a lot of sense. If you're paying someone who is not working, that is giving that person an incentive to not work. But why are we paying that person unemployment benefits in the first place? Well, because he lost his job. Well, tell him to find his job and start working again, because we only pay people that work. See? I told you it all made sense. 
And this isn't some flip economic theory George Will tosses out there. This is a real, embedded, deep-grained philosophy of the quote-unquote conservatives in America. Here's Senator Kyle from Arizona talking about taking away unemployment benefits, and he even goes one better on the screwed scale. What of the subject of unemployment extension, uh, coverage extension, which we've just been debating? That doesn't create new jobs. In fact, if anything, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. But you can't argue that it's a job enhancer. If anything, as I said, it's a disincentive. And the same thing with the COBRA extension. Did you hear that little thing about COBRA at the end? That means that Senator Kyle wants to take away people who just lost their jobs. He wants to take away their health care, too. Yeah, and if that doesn't work, maybe you take away their water and you put crackers and sand in their mouth. They'll get a job then, those lazy sons of bitches. You know, what George Will is saying isn't technically wrong. The premise of what he's saying is wrong. Unemployment benefits aren't stimulative. They're to keep the economy from sliding deeper into the crapper. New government programs are stimulative. Short-term lending is stimulative. Incentivizing domestic manufacturing is stimulative. Unemployment benefits mitigate the mortgage crisis and the debt crisis and keep that much more money flowing through the maintenance portion of the domestic economy. So there it is. In case you needed even more evidence, there it is. George Will and the Republican Congress don't understand the basic reason for things. And they're also dicks. Thanks for listening, everyone. So as a producer slash host of a show like this, uh, generally what I would have... um, you know, for a standard show would be something like opinions. And I would uh, tell you my opinions and then you would listen to them and quietly contemplate those opinions that I had, think about them, and then have the feeling like you didn't just waste your time listening to the show. Uh, that, that's generally how it works. Today, though, I have uh, I have some opinions, but it's, it's about a 60-40 split. I, I have about 40% opinion and 60% question. And the reason for that is uh, I didn't plan this out so far in advance that I could go do my own research. So uh, so my opinions are mildly uh, less informed than one might hope, but I feel like I should say it anyways and uh, and then and but openly ask for uh, for feedback and admit that I don't. Uh, I don't have an extremely solid grasp on what I'm saying. So, if you uh, if you still think you're not wasting your time and haven't uh, fast forwarded yet, here we go. So my thoughts on uh, economics go something like this: to take as an example the housing crisis that we just had, because that's what people are most familiar with at the moment. That crisis came about because there was this type of mass delusion where everyone in the country. Uh, and maybe even by extension, most people in the world had this idea that the American housing economy was going up and wasn't ever going to stop going up. And so you could invest in real estate or homes, and it seemed like a rock-solid investment 
because housing prices hadn't gone down uh, in a very long time. And in fact, they were going up very fast. So you could practically buy a home and a couple years later, it would be worth 50% more than when you bought it. You know, it was crazy. And I, I watched this happen in my own life, you know, with, with friends and family who uh, bought homes. Of course, I never had a home in that uh, period and still don't actually. But, uh, you know, there, there was this idea that it would keep going up and up and that was one, you know, of course, it was incredibly complicated, but it's one of the driving factors behind uh, the huge push for investment in that area of the economy. And so then when it kind of came to light, really, uh, because it, it, it this was always the case, it's just that no one realized it was the case. But when it came to light that that was a house of cards, it was such a devastating impact on the economy because so many things were invested in mortgage-backed securities. So that's one example of mass delusion and uh, and you know faith in a faulty system being devastating to the people, you know, the people of the country and the world whose uh, you know whose economic standing was hurt by this mass delusion, essentially. And so I would like to take this uh, this example and expand it up just about as far as we can expand it. As you know, little humans living on a little planet, we can expand that idea as far as uh, you know our entire world economy. And we currently live in a paradigm where if the economy isn't growing, then it's bad. It absolutely has to be growing in order to be deemed healthy. And it frankly, I mean, we, we all live in this paradigm and we grow up hearing the news about the economy and if the economy is growing, it's good and we feel good about it. If it's going down, we say, oh, that's too bad. We should try to make it go up again. And, and we live in this, in this incredibly insular paradigm that it's almost impossible to see out of. And, uh, but, but my argument is that every single system in the universe has natural limits and so logically speaking, an economy based on perpetual growth is by definition unsustainable. And, you know, the economy is unsustainable in the same way that just about everything first world nations in this, uh, in this world are doing right now is unsustainable. And so that's my 40% opinion. The 60% question I have is, uh, I don't know what to do about that. I have heard about theories of zero growth economics, uh, but I don't know how it works. Um, so I made the decision before I started talking today that I would say these things, even though I don't have a conclusion for you. I didn't, I haven't done the research yet. Um, but I want you guys to think about it. And, and really what I think is more likely is if, uh, if some great listeners out there have, uh, resources that you could send to me, uh, this is something I've been meaning to look into for a long time and uh, am very interested in learning about basically as, as a theory and, and practice because I imagine if I do the research and I learn about it and I uh, find that it is what I think it is and is a whole new paradigm of how economics can be done in this country and the world, uh, then I imagine that that is what I would begin advocating for if I knew enough about it to be able to advocate for it. 
And of course, this conversation about sustainable economics parlays perfectly into sustainable living and uh, and sustainable climate issues as well. Uh, the, the most recent person I heard talk about this was on the show, and so you heard it too, hopefully, um, one of the most recent episodes on climate change where uh, one of the, like, godfathers of climate change activism, Bill McKibben, was interviewed, and he talked about uh, one of the most important things is that we need to learn to move beyond growth. But I don't think he went into into a whole lot of detail on it either. So there you go. Th those are my very preliminary thoughts on, on that topic. I certainly hope to learn more about it. If you know anything about it, uh, uh, you know, send, uh, send information my way. It'd be appreciated. Now to kind of awkwardly segue, speaking of economics, uh, members help support this show. I, don't, I haven't mentioned this in a while. I don't know if you know, uh, this, this podcast is not the least bit of a hobby of mine. Uh, this podcast is actually my job and is actually, as you probably noticed, because there are extremely few commercials, if any, these days, the only ones you hear basically are, uh, are for Amazon.com, which is, you know, they... You can shop through my website and like I'm not even trying to sell you a product really. And so I just want to mention that, you know, the show really is supported uh, pretty much entirely by listeners, you know, not uh, not advertising dollars, not underwriting dollars, nothing like that. And so it really comes straight from you guys, you know, donations uh, and membership signups are the absolute bread and butter uh, of the show that that make it possible. And so, you know, as much as I would love to not have to ask for any money from anyone to keep the show going and it could just, uh, you know, pay for itself somehow magically, that's uh, just not the economic realities we live in, so to speak. So if you're interested in supporting the show, head over to bestoftheleft.com. You can check out the uh, donation buttons, uh, membership tab, uh, all those things, Amazon box, uh, and, and all the other ways to help spread the word about the show, get more people listening, and so on and so on. And that's what uh, that's what keeps the show going. And no, the irony of, of uh, talking about how the size of the show needs to continue to grow in order to be maintained after denouncing growth economics is not lost on me. And now, more specifically, I want to thank a couple of members, as I do every show. Uh, I want to thank a couple of people, and let me apologize for uh, butchering probably both of your names today, but uh, Mayada... L uh, signed up on August 27th, signed up for a monthly membership, and has been sticking with the show uh, for a really long time, so huge thanks there. And uh, and Ernesto F signed up uh, for a, a yearly membership, but signed up way back on November 1st, so uh, has been supporting the show for a while. And so huge thanks to both of those members and all the members and donors who keep the show going. So that's going to do it today. To stay in contact with the show between episodes, sign up and follow us on either Facebook or Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black,
Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.